Hello, Katawan Tokyo Kamlo Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up first. We thought the 2017 was the worst on record. This time round, it seems to be a progression from that. PNG's election on track to be the country's worst ever. It was not a statement about the marshals not wanting to be a part of it or anything like that. Quite the contrary. Sorting forum block high on marshals' agenda and... We have the law of Sokolau, but we also have these local council who has the authority. Tokelau village elders refute anti-vax narrative of their community affairs. There's growing consensus in Papua New Guinea that the current national election, marred by violence, vote tampering and misinformation, is the worst the country has experienced in its nearly 50 years of independence. Our correspondent, Scott Wyde, says he's never seen anything like it in his more than 20 years of covering PNG elections. Don Wiseman spoke with the executive director of PNG's Independent Institute of National Affairs, Paul Barker, about the issues affecting the poll and looked at what needs to change. He began by asking how bad the current poll is. Yes, well, I mean, each successive election seems to have got a step worse. We thought the 2017 was was the worst on record. And this time around, it seems to be uh, a progression from that in, in the wrong direction. And it's sort of, it seems to start at the inadequate update of the role and electoral rolls so that very large numbers are not on the roll. And there's a level of frustration then within the, the voting community and, of course, amongst the, uh, the candidates. We're also seeing a lot of shifting around of ballot boxes, which has happened before, but it seems to sort of be happening more this time without sort of adequate authorization explanation. Sometimes large numbers of ballot boxes, we're hearing of cases of uh, places where no one seemed to vote and yet multiple ballot boxes seem to be being counted. So yes, there's a, there are a lot of issues, but it's the preparation stage. If you haven't got the adequate update of the role in the first place, you're starting to create uncertainty, discontent, and uh, and distrust. And Who's to blame for that? Is it simply the Electoral Commission, or is it because the Electoral Commission hasn't been properly funded? Well, it's a combination of them both. The responsibility for updating the uh, electoral role is the Electoral Commission's, and uh, at the local level, it's particularly... The, a core responsibility of the respective returning officers. But of course, those returning officers were only appointed in the last months. The commissioner himself was only appointed sort of uh, late last year. Uh, and although he has been a, a permanent staff member, obviously uh, one of the factors is you are meant to have a national census sort of prior to elections or within a reasonable period. The last time we've had a national census is 2011. So that's a fair while ago. And that's meant to provide a, a bit of a basis for the common role updates. But of course, it is the responsibility of the Electoral Commission. But a lot of what happens is that after each election, all kinds of issues get raised, concerns get raised, and commitments to do things better. And, and work is done by the Constitutional Law Reform Commission and the Registrar of Political Parties identifying problems, reports from the observers and so on, the external and the domestic observers, 
But then as the five-year interval goes by, very little actually happens on the ground in the first period, and it, then funds start getting released rather late in the day and the year before, and then at the last minute. And we added this time a seven new electorates at the last minute to add to the already substantial challenges for the Electoral Commission. What's the solution, Paul? Well, the solution is very early preparation. Certainly many people are saying a biometric system would make life a lot uh, easier, but obviously that involves a lot of preparation. Uh, There was a decision to go that way in May of last year, apparently, by the government, but obviously that was far too late in the day to undertake such an exercise. One needs to sort of start, have the national census as soon as possible for multiple purposes, including election uh, purposes, and then to go ahead with progressive updating of the roles, making sure that those roles are widely accessible to people as well. They should be being posted on notice boards. Instead, it was like at the last minute it was accessible online and then it seemed to be offline again. So people weren't able to check. And then the lists, people didn't know where to vote. Uh, the lists were uh, were not accessible and, and they had to walk around from polling station to polling station, unable to find their names and in the end, in many cases, unable to vote. So total lack of trust resulted from that. So we need to sort of have it prepared early, adequate budget allocations to achieve the uh, objectives and the transparency early on, because that's critical for building up the levels of trust, because that's so fundamental. And a lot of election awareness out in the communities on what to expect, what standards to demand. So it really requires a wide community participation, participation from non-government organizations, wide accessibility to the outcomes of the reports from the international and domestic observer teams and an actual application of, uh, of those recommendations, both domestic as a, and international. Okay. And really a... a, a um, a coordinated approach. Obviously, the Electoral Commission at the centre. And if there have to be significant reforms to the Electoral Commission to improve the accountability mechanisms, ensure that there's a, a strong independent advisory committee there that maybe has some teeth as well, maybe to um, strengthen the commission so that it's a three-person commission rather than a one-person, and clearly to make sure that there's a system for selection of returning officers who are not going to be seen to be uh, unduly connected with the, the sitting members but are impartial for this purpose. Removing legal blocks to the Marshall Islands' participation in the Pacific Islands Forum will be high on the agenda of the next sitting of the country's parliament. Vanity Jela is due to resume next month, and despite President David Kabua's absence from last week's Pacific Islands Forum leaders' meeting, the government is adamant this was only due to a domestic legal issue and had no bearing on the country's future involvement in the regional body. Joining me is RNZ Pacific's correspondent in Majuro, Gif Johnson. Kira, and welcome back on Pacific Waves, GIF. What's the latest being said about the issue there? As far as uh, I can determine from talking to the top people here, uh, there's no issue about withdrawing from the forum. The Marshall Islands wants to be in the forum. They value it. Uh, and they, they, it, was, it was through really their own internal 
process and inability to resolve some legislation that affected the membership that they felt they could not participate in the most recent leaders meeting in Suva. Uh, but it was not a statement about the marshals not wanting to be a part of it or anything like that. Quite the contrary. I mean, they're saying very bluntly, they would have, the president, uh, President Kabua would have been there had it not been for this legal issue that they felt precluded it. And so now uh, the talk is from, from top level leadership about going into their upcoming session of parliament to resolve the legislative issue that is currently the roadblock to membership of the Marshall Islands and the Pacific Islands Forum. Just backtracking a bit, what is this legislative issue, if you can explain it a bit for us? So uh, over a year ago, uh, shortly after the forum uh, had held its vote and uh, current Secretary General Puna had had won by one vote, nine to eight, uh, the marshals and the other four Micronesia area heads of state all announced that they were going to pull out of the forum. I mean, they had said it before the vote if if that happened and they they went through on their promise. And at the same time as the marshals was doing this, the parliament, the Nidijela here, introduced a resolution supporting the pullout. And I believe that this this is where the the problem arose, because as far as I know, none of the parliaments in the other Micronesian countries uh, passed resolutions or legislation regarding the matter. It was simply an executive branch decision on this. But in the Marshalls, it was an executive branch decision that was then backed up uh, rather vehemently with a, a resolution supporting the withdrawal, and that stayed on the books. And so then the one-year period from the denunci- from the filing of the denunciation letter with the Fiji government in Suva as the host of the forum, that one year ended on March 9, I believe, this year, and that legislation was still on the books. And when the the government, the parliament, uh, the speaker actually in February had introduced a a resolution to rescind the earlier one, simply wipe it off the book, put in a a resolution saying the Marshall Islands values membership in the forum, blah, 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 and get rid of the previous resolution. Well, he got undermined by people in their own political party who totally rewrote the resolution to say it didn't rescind the earlier uh, legislation, but rather supported the pause that had been put in when the Micronesian, when came up to the deadline, you'll recall that everybody kind of said, okay, well, there's negotiations going on for reform. So let's give them a little more time. And the Micronesian government said, okay, we'll pause for three or four months and see how we're going. Well, this didn't sit, this rewrite of this resolution really offended the speaker and he blew up about it in parliament and just, it, he just was so mad. He pulled the resolution out, and put it off the table. And so then the parliament ended with nothing. And so March 9 rolled around and boom, they concluded that because the earlier resolution supporting the pullout was still on the books, that that was the state of play 
uh, leading up to the forum leaders meeting this pad uh, a couple of weeks ago in Suva, or a week ago in Suva. Now, just bouncing out a bit here, Kiribati's decision to withdraw, how was that received? Um, have we had any comment from leaders in Marshall Islands to that? I think people were generally surprised by it. And also the sort of lack of timeliness of the communication from uh, the Kiribati president to the forum secretary general. I mean, it was, you know, so close to the meeting that there was, uh, you know, there was a request to delay it because of, there was a conflict with the independent celebrations in, in Kiribati. And I mean, all, you know, those legitimate things, but that's something that it would have had to have been taken into consideration like eight months ahead of time. You know, I mean, a meeting like this doesn't get scheduled or rescheduled the week before. Uh, and so I think I like there was some sort of just surprise about that. And I think people said, well, it's their decision. And if they want to pull out, uh, I think the probably the, the troubling aspect of it is when combined with a few other things, it just raises some question marks about governance and how, you know, w- what's happening in Kiribati to do with uh, governance of like its fishery with the change in the proposed change in the Phoenix Islands protected area. Um, you know, the the problems that the, the they've had now with suspending their entire judiciary, the, you know, the high court judges, and they're just several things in a row that just, you know, makes you wonder. And, you know, what's, uh, I mean, the other Micronesian countries, I think, feel like there's some back and forth. And I think all of them feel, feel friendly with Kiribati. So I think there's going to be ongoing communication. And I doubt that, you know, that the, that leaders up in the North, uh, we'll just let it go. I mean, I'm sure they'll be communicating with 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 Kiribati and talking with them about you know next steps and and I mean, you know, even not in the forum, they're still very much a part of other regional groupings. Concerns are mounting over the spread of misinformation by the only family living on Tokelau's Nukunonu Atoll who've refused to get vaccinated against COVID-19. They've been placed under Tunoa, which roughly translates to house arrest by community elders since August last year. The general manager for the office of the Council of Nukunonu, Asi Pasilio, spoke with our reporter Lydia Lewis about the cultural complexities surrounding the case. Yesterday, we also had Mr. Marcelino Patricio. We invited him to the council meeting so that the council can speak with him about their situation, the untrue stories that have been spreading over the the media in New Zealand, over the Facebook and all over the internet. It was the concern of the council that the Prime Minister is being framed in a very negative way and Mr. Ross um, Arden is also blamed by this family, but um, seriously, they have nothing to do with this. This is a local council uh, decision, and it has nothing to do with uh, Mr. Ross Adern and Prime Minister Jacinta Adern. 
and if anything, uh, Ross was asking the the council to please consider their decision before he left the office. You know that he's no longer the administrator for Tokelau, and that was one of his last requests. So I just want to clear that there is this decision of house arrest with this family has got nothing to do with Her Excellency, the Prime Minister, and also our former administrator, uh, Mr. Ross Adern. Thank you. Can you please explain the legal side of this? I mean, when you say house arrest, tell me about that. Is it a a community-led issue? Is this mandated under a court? What is the exact legal framework around this that keeps these people at home? Okay. This is a village rule, and this is the decision of the local council who runs the island in the community. And we have the law of Tokelau, but we also have this local council who has the authority over their, their village. And for our village, Nukunonu, we have our local council. And we don't have jails here in Tokelau, but when when there is a serious offense or what the local council refer to as serious offense, this is what happened. We can just ask them to stay at home. And it's kind of a punishment. It is my understanding that this family is under a tunoa, which you say isn't legally yeah. binding in court, something that is placed by the council. Is this being twisted in the misinformation overseas? Do people just simply not understand cultural practices that have been happening yeah. for generations yeah. in Tokelau? Yeah. I, I, I think there is the case here. It will take someone to come here and live our life here to understand what we mean by house arrest and council authority and communal living, you know. There is hardly any... Yes, of course, you make your own decision here, but communal, doing things in a communal uh, manner is is very common to our understanding, and it is what we know. And you can imagine this is a small community, and, and it is, of course, everyone is like together. To see a person being against what the community or what the, the council believes in and what the council decided is very uncommon. And you can see, I mean, from from a point of view of a person outside of Nukunonu Tokelau or Tokelau, it would be hard for them to understand the cultural context we are in. Out of the three atolls in Tokelau, Fakaofo, Everyone has been vaccinated. Atafu, a handful, I understand, has refused. But on Atafu, restrictions have been loosened. People who have refused the vaccine, I understand, are allowed to leave their homes, but restrictions are in place. Is this something that the Council of Nukunonu has considered? Uh, Currently, uh, the decision will be revealed but they'll be given another vaccination has arrived. It arrived uh, on Sunday, and this is the booster for for some of, of the villages. And they're be, being given another chance to decide whether to be in that group 
or not. So if they decide against it, then the, the, the council will have to decide again to see what happens. But if they decide to take the vaccination, it would obviously, they will be freed, you know, like they will no longer be under house arrest. So yesterday they were told of the opportunity to get their vaccination. So they're yet to come back on whether they have changed their mind or not. When, when will they have the opportunity? What day will they have the chance to get the vaccine? Uh, vaccine is now here. The, the plan right now is maybe Thursday or Friday. That's when the vaccination will be done. And, and everyone, like unlike New Zealand, you may go on your own time. Our island, we all go on one, one day, one time, get it done. Lydia Lewis asked New Zealand's Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade for an interview. They declined but have provided this statement. The former administrator Ross Ardern received a number of communications in connection with Dokalau's decision to apply the cultural practice of Tunoa to those who choose not to be vaccinated. When asked if Ross Ardern had any say in the implementation of Tunoa, MFAT said... No, mandatory vaccination was a decision taken by Tokelau's village leaders. Tokelau and Aotearoa New Zealand share the same aspiration for Tokelau to move closer towards self-government. Home isolation has been authorised under Tokelau's customary practice of Tunoa, a practice over which Aotearoa New Zealand has no direct authority. Furthermore, NFAT says Aotearoa New Zealand officials have engaged extensively with Tokelau's leaders to encourage them to strike a balance between the rights of the majority to remain safe from COVID-19 in their villages and the rights of the individual. RNZ Pacific has contacted the family involved, but they have not yet responded. RNZ Pacific has contacted the family involved and is awaiting a response. That brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Thank you, Tomas, and looking for that next time more.